Hello and welcome to the Locked On Canucks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Justin Morissette and this is your Locked On Canucks for Sunday, November 10th, the day that the Vancouver Canucks fall at home 2-1 to one to the lowly New Jersey Devils, a Devils team that has now won 10 straight games, possibly 11 straight in fact, against the Vancouver Canucks, uh, whatever it happens to be. Vancouver is just simply cursed and cannot defeat this team, and I am cursed as well. Uh, the team is punishing me at the moment for believing that they could potentially go 8-4 and four, uh, during the remaining 12 games in the month of November. We are going to be lucky at this point to see them go 6-6 six and six, uh, down the stretch here in this very difficult month full of travel, uh, but... Regardless, uh, I'm I'm at a bit of a loss as to how to present the next couple episodes here because uh, after yesterday's show with Daniel Wagner at the very tail end of that interview, uh, Daniel and I opened up a bit of a can of worms about the JT Miller trade and whether or not uh, that deal is worth it, whether or not the process behind that deal makes sense. Uh, given now that uh, JT Miller has obviously proven himself to be a tremendous fit on this hockey club, and uh, Daniel didn't agree with me that uh, it is a, a good move. He still stands by the fact that you cannot give up a first-rounder in the situation that the Canucks uh, are in, and I wanted to continue that conversation because I think there's a lot of meat on that bone, and to do that, I got in touch with the one person that I knew would fight me on that issue harder than anyone else, and that is the managing editor of Canucks Army, Jackson McDonald, and uh, Jackson and I wound up talking for so long that there's no way I can possibly uh, publish this as just one episode of Locked On Canucks. I have to split it over two days here. But to do that, I have to postpone my ability to break down uh, today's action against the New Jersey Devils. So you'll have to wait to hear my thoughts on the New Jersey game uh, ahead of Tuesday's action at home against the National Predators. I'll have a, a show out on Tuesday morning breaking down exactly uh, what went wrong against New Jersey and how things have uh, just lined up to uh, just, you know, be be pretty bad for this team of late as they have come crashing back down to earth in a relatively big way after a red hot start. But there's still a lot to like as well. And why we'll talk about that uh, when Tuesday comes around. In the meantime, uh, there is one thing that I do want to acknowledge from today's news before I get into this interview with Jackson McDonald, and that is the announcement that came after the game came to a close. Uh, Jacob Markstrom, uh, of course, who left the team a couple weeks back during the New York road trip uh, to go back to Sweden and attend to a family emergency. Uh, you know, I, when I had Nathan Cadell on the show a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that we were probably never going to know what that emergency was. We're probably never going to find out why he had to leave the team. Unfortunately, we do know now because on the same day that the Canucks put on their Hockey Fights Cancer game. As every team in the NHL hosts a game uh, once this month, during the month of November, uh, to celebrate the Hockey Fights Cancer Initiative, it is uh, not a celebration at all. It is not a rallying point uh, for Jacob Markstrom as he announces that his father has passed away uh, due to cancer and uh, credited him for being a great man who shaped him into the fighter and warrior that Markstrom is uh, today. So uh, my heart goes out to Jacob Markstrom, who is an absolute king, nothing but respect for the man and everything that he has battled through to still be an exceptional goaltender for this team over the last month and a bit. And uh, it's been a situation that has been spiraling for, uh, according to Markstrom's Instagram post, the last six months. <coughs> 
So this has been weighing on him for quite a while, and uh, the fact that he's been able to deliver the kinds of performances. I mean, what he did in the crease for the last six months during this time is really irrelevant, um, but, you know, your heart goes out to the guy, and uh, he's he is an exceptional player. He has turned himself into an exceptional player for this team, but more than that, he has always been an exceptional person, and... Um, uh, all the love in the world to the Markstrom family at this time. Having said that, there's no easy transition away from there, but uh, let's get into today's interview, uh, which will continue over into tomorrow's show during the holiday Monday as well. A two-part chat that was recorded earlier this morning and surprisingly is not at all dated. In fact, if anything, uh, this is a prescient conversation because a lot of what we talked about uh, in this chat uh, went on to be proved true during today's game against the New Jersey Devils. So uh, Jackson and I might know a few things as far as what is powering this team's success and what is hindering it from uh, reaching even loftier heights. Without further ado, my conversation with Jackson McDonald. All right, yesterday's show closed out with a discussion with Daniel Wagner about uh, the J.T. Miller trade and whether or not it was worth it, and I didn't really have a ton of time to get into that with Daniel at the time, which meant that there was only one person that I could call up this morning to continue that conversation. There's only one man who I wanted to be yelled at on this topic, and that is returning favorite, the first ever second-time guest on Locked on Canucks. It's the man editor of Canucks Army and the host of the Roxy Fever podcast, Jackson McDonald. Jackson, welcome back to Locked on Canucks. Uh, I didn't realize I was the first time returning champ. That's uh, that's an honor. Thank you for having me. No problem. Shall we start with uh, JT Miller then? Because I know yeah. you listened to yesterday's show. And, I did. Yeah. And, I, and I have a feeling that you're in strong agreement with uh, Mr. Wagner on that one. Generally, yeah. Um, I have to express a bit of contrition here just with regards to the fact that JT Miller has been a lot better than I thought he was going to be. I, I think I discussed this the last time I was on the show, but there's just something that happens to your brain when you've followed enough Canucks hockey that makes you assume everything will just go horribly wrong all the time. Oh yeah, I don't even I don't begrudge you that at all. As much as I think that you have been, you know, uh, maybe needlessly cynical on some issues this season. Sure. Like, I've been there. That's been my mindset for the last four years. I have no idea what it is that's making me want to feel some degree of optimism. Maybe it's just the power of Elias Pettersson in general. But, like, I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, don't get me wrong on that. Yeah, well, there are a lot of a lot of sort of moving parts to this. And I think you mentioned Elias Pettersson, and that is he, – he is, rather, the biggest X-factor – in terms of why this team is, has done so well out of the gate. Obviously, things may be coming back down to earth a little bit now in November. We'll see how we feel at the end of the month. But I think a big part of the reason why JT Miller is, has done so well this year is because he's playing with Elias Pettersson, and Elias Pettersson is he's just taken the next step forward. I wasn't sure that was going to happen. I thought... Obviously, he had an amazing rookie season, but he also shot at something like 30%. And so I thought that there might be some growing pains for him, but that hasn't happened at all. And he's basically proven that he's going to be 
one of the league's elite players for probably the next 10 or so years. And that really changes the Canucks' outlook. Um, as far as JT Miller is concerned, I think that it's important to keep in mind here that he was initially signed to be Bo Horvat's winger. And so, yeah, that was the big project of, going into the summer was get a defenseman and get Bo a winger. Make, create so, another duo because we already have Pedersen and Besser, and, and that's Besser. fine. Exactly. And so it's great that this has worked out and that he's playing so well with uh, Pedersen and Besser, and you do get to reap the rewards for that, the, the praise, um, because obviously you went out and acquired him, and the fact that plan A fell through and but plan B is working out so well doesn't mean that you deserve scorn for plan A failing or, or anything like that. But I think it's worth sort of questioning like how much of this is just good fortune versus how much of it is careful planning and uh, targeting JT Miller specifically because they knew he was going to be the perfect winger for Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser. I don't think that's what happened. I think they, uh, I think they kind of just lucked out with how well he's worked out on that line. Um, but at the same time, good on you, Jim. Good on you, John, for uh, finding a third piece on what's been one of the best lines in hockey so far. So uh, I did just want to say that I, uh, I've moved, my opinion on J.T. Miller has moved considerably since I've actually had the time to see him play on the Canucks. Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack there that is completely <laughs> separate from uh, whether or not the process on making this trade was a good one or not, which is, you know, I think the, the grander argument, and we will get sure. there in just a second. But let's start with Elias Pettersson's, uh, you know, unsustainable shooting percentage. Because, yes, there's no player who's going to shoot at 30% over the course of an entire career or even over the course of multiple seasons. But when I looked at what Pettersson was doing last season, it reminded me a lot, and we talked about him on the show yesterday, yesterday uh, with Daniel Wagner as well. Kyle Wellwood had a very high shooting percentage during his tenure with the Canucks as well, and it it seemed sustainable because the reason he was able to do that is that he got himself into high percentage scoring opportunities time and time again. He knew where to go. He got the puck in the most dangerous areas, and he had the shot to make sure he made good on getting those chances. Now, obviously, Elias Pettersson has an incredible shot, significantly better than what Kyle Wellwood was ripping during his tenure. So to me, it's like, yeah, I mean, obviously 30% is high, and it's it's not uh, something that can, can bear out, but there's also a reason why he shot that high, and it's because he's doing all the right things, and those things kind of are sustainable in a way. Well, that's always where things get fuzzy, is that we know that percentages are going to regress but we don't know by how much they're going to regress. Um, and I, I, my sort of general rule is to use the sort of like Steven Stamkos 15, 16 percent as a, as sort of a line for anything over that is getting into ridiculous territory where we know it's not going to stay there forever. But just because the uh, um, percentages aren't sustainable doesn't mean that the level of offense isn't sustainable because what's happened with Patterson and others uh, on the team as well is their shooting percentage regresses, but their shot rates go up. And so that 
balances things. And so they're still going to have, you know, 30 goal seasons or whatever. Um, I just on a personal note have kind of moved away from relying. I don't want to say relying too much on um, analytics because I do still rely on that a lot. And it's something I, I look at and always, it's always sort of step one to whatever analysis I'm going to do. But um, I do, I have been seeing, especially with this team this year, I have been seeing a lot of people sort of making jumps in logic based on the numbers, but not considering enough outside factors. So I've sort of walked elements of that back. And um, one thing that I definitely, uh, one area where I definitely made a mistake was sort of just assuming that all of the Canucks elite players were going to take a a big step back this year. Um, And I will say that, in my defense, a lot of people, I think, made a mistake assuming they would all take a step forward as well because, as we know, that's not always what young players do. But I, I've i trusted in Elias Pettersson from the day he was drafted and even before that. And so I have been, I think, uh, I've had to eat crow a little bit and I should have known better because um, I've always known that this was a player who was going to be one of the great centers in the league, if not one of the truly elite centers in this league. So, um, yeah. Of course, getting to watch one of the league's great centers is even more enjoyable when you treat yourself to a great meal, and I want to help you do just that. Treat yourself to the meal that you deserve and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code Locked On. Well, you and I, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but uh, I should make it explicit, have a $50 bet on whether or not the team yeah. will make the playoffs uh, during the, the two-year window of uh, the conditional draft pick in this JT Miller deal. And part of the reason I felt so confident making that uh, bet that they would make the playoffs is like, they are a good young team. They are going to get better. I, I shouted at you in a bar yeah. at the draft last year. They're not going to get <laughs> worse that is not how this works uh and lo and behold uh this is where we are at the same time you know i have to concede as well there's i you know i hated the tyler myers signing when that went down i had a ton of reason to hate that signing and it has worked out better than i think even the most optimistic uh believers when the signing went down i don't think could have foreseen the start that he's had to his canucks tenure so that's it. I'm actually glad you brought that up because it sort of attaches it, it. It segues well from my last point about getting a little too caught up in the numbers. Obviously, like I said, they're still important. But um, Tyler Myers is a good example of of this, where you know he's played. I I'm bad at math. I think it's been something like 15 games the Canucks have played so far, and through those 15 games, he's had these insane shot shares. He's played really, really well. Um, but that's not even, even though it's appears that he's doing this in a sustainable way. If you think about it logically, you have to know that it's not sustainable because the Canucks have mostly played very bad teams so far. Uh, we're in year one of a five-year contract and Alex Edler is playing 25 minutes a night, mostly attached to Tyler Myers. And, we know that even if that pairing is putting up strong numbers right now, 
it remind. I mean, I think one of you, either yourself or Daniel, mentioned in the last episode how this reminds you of the Tortorella year. It, it was me, yeah. It was you, okay, yeah. Where they, uh, the, where John Tortorella played the Sedins for twenty minutes a night, twenty three minutes were, a night sometimes. Yeah, as four and words, they were, and they were fantastic for the first month, month and a bit of the season, and then after that, they had their worst offensive totals ever including their, like, rookie seasons. They were awful. Even worse than their, like, retirement seasons as well? Yeah. <laughs> I, it was so bad. It was shockingly bad. But regardless, I won't, I won't open up that can, can of worms. But um, there's things about this run of success that even if looking at the numbers, um, just carte, carte blanche, the Corsi expected goals, all of that, if you really think about it on a deeper level, you have to know somewhere deep down that it's not going to last the way it is. Now, they may be much better than we thought they were going to be at the beginning of the season, but Alex Edler is 33 years old, playing 25 minutes a night. Those shot share numbers are going to go down because it he's just getting older and he wasn't putting up these kinds of numbers even a lot of the time when he was young and not, you know, breaking every bone in his body on a regular basis. So um, I, just as far as the Myers thing is concerned, I I don't think you should be too hard on yourself because I do think that um, while it's worked out initially, this is going to be something that in a few years we're going to be saying, oh yeah, okay, we were actually, we were right about this. Well, let's circle back to JT Miller for a second because, as you mentioned, he was brought in to be the you know the 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 duo partner for Bo Horvat, let's say, and obviously that's where he started the year, but it didn't last very long. One, maybe two games that Alberta road trip, and that's pretty well it. Uh, before he got bumped up to the top line, and he has not looked back, which is great for him, and it's great for Elias Pettersson, and it's great for Brock Besser. That trio has been. Utterly fantastic. You know, one of the most exciting things to watch here in Vancouver that we've been treated to in years and years and years. But it has left Bo Horvat in a bit of a precarious situation because, uh, you know, as much as uh, Tanner Pearson had a red-hot start to his Canucks career, both uh, last year and the start of this one, he has tapered off over the last you know, 10 games or so here, I think it's fair to say. He's not uh, producing points anyways at anywhere near the rate that he was to start his Canucks tenure. And, um, you know, there's been so much made about the fact that Brandon Sutter is not being used in a checking role any longer, that he has been freed up to kind of play a fourth-line role of, like, not being particularly important and getting the easiest matchups of anyone on the team, Um, which has freed Brandon Sutter up to put up some five-on-five production numbers that are, you know, nice and good for him and, I guess, maximizing what he can possibly contribute to this roster. But it has put an enormous burden on Bo Horvat, who... Uh, you know, defensively has suffered quite a bit in, in trying to play that role. How much of that is, you know, just putting too much on Bo's plate as far as defensive responsibility, given that he's never really been all that great at it over the course of his career, save for uh, maybe a, a little bit last year where he seemed to take a great pride in making progress in that element of his game. And how much of it is just that he's been stuck with a rotating carousel of some of the worst wingers to play with on this team in the absence of uh, a real fit like JT Miller? Well, yeah, I, I, th- I do think it is that last 
thing you mentioned probably more than than anything else. Uh, it's very, very hard to maintain an elite level of play when not only are you not playing with great line mates, but you're also not playing with any one line mate consistently. I think the Canucks thought they found a really great fit in Tanner Pearson. And the early returns on that line were good. And I still like Tanner Pearson and I'm yeah, sort of so do waiting I. for him to break out again. So do I. Don't but, get me wrong. Yeah. I think that's another element to their success that hasn't been considered all that much is how streaky a lot of these players are. Tanner Pearson is a very streaky player. Michael Furland, obviously out of the lineup right now, but he is a very streaky player. So that's almost more in the positive sense of when he gets back in the lineup, you know, he might not be as bad as he's looked through the first few for the, through the first month of the season or whatever. But um, Brandon Sutter was always a streaky player too. And so it's not surprising to me that he's had this uh, strong start with the easier matchups, but, that stuff's not going to last. Um, as far as Bo Horvat's concerned, um, I, that, that's a big part of the reason why I can't give them too much credit for the JT Miller trade appearing to have worked out so far, is that the biggest need is still to find a winger to play with Bo Horvat. It's great that JT Miller has played well with Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser, but there are players in the AHL right now that have played great with Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser. So it's unsurprising that a, a guy who had 50 points last season that you paid a first-round pick for is playing well with your two best players. If that weren't the case, that would be very, very, very troubling. So, yeah, as far as what the biggest issue is with the Horvat line, I do think it's just that lack of of consistent line mates, of players that can match his level of work ethic and his talent. And, you know, obviously there are there's other elements that have played into that as well. Horvat has never been that great of a two-way center. He's more of an offensive force, although I would say that his two-way profile has taken a step forward in the last couple of seasons. Um, but, yeah, I think it's mostly the line mates. Uh, well, it seems like the easy fix for this would be to, when you look at the positive contributions and, and you know the underlying analytics behind Josh Levo's game and everything that he's bringing to uh, being a line mate for Brandon Sutter, Bo Horvat could use that guy again. And obviously, Levo has played with Horvat uh, last year and a little bit this year as well. It just seems like you know if if you're going to uh, try and fix the issues with this line defensively, Levo would be a huge help on that front. But then I guess you're robbing Peter to pay Paul because uh, if you were to make that move. Everything that we are seeing that people are, you know, liking about what Brandon Sutter is doing so far this season seems like it would absolutely crater without Josh Levo. Absolutely. And that's the that's been one of their biggest problems with trying to find line mates for Bo Horvat is that he can play at a very high level with just about anybody. And so he often gets stuck with guys that just don't really fit anywhere else. And this is I feel like I've been saying this for my entire life at this point, but this is the problem with having two centers on your lineup that don't really produce offense. And I know Brandon Sutter has personally had some good numbers to start the year, but historically not a big producer of offense. And even when he himself is potting goals in the net, he just absolutely, his line mates, they're, 
offense just absolutely craters. He has no playmaking ability whatsoever, which is why I actually quite liked him on the wing with a player like Adam Gaudet. Um, but I don't know if they really have the desire to go back to that well on a consistent basis. Well, if you're trying to find a line mate for Bo Horvat, we may have just found one. Finally played his first regular season game uh, on Friday against Winnipeg, and that would be, of course, a favorite uh, pet topic on this program. Sven Berchi made his big season debut against the Jets. I didn't get the chance to talk about this with Daniel yesterday, so let's you and I get into it today, Jackson, because, uh, you know, he didn't score, he didn't put up points, but the early returns for Sven were quite good. He had a 70% uh, Corsi 4. Uh, he had, a, you know, the high danger scoring chances when Sven was on the ice were 7 nothing in favor of the Canucks. <laughs> These are all things that you would think, uh, you know, a guy like Bo Horvat desperately needs in a line mate right now. Yeah, name a better winger that Horvat has played with consistently than Sven Berchi. You can't do it. There yeah, I don't think you can. The, the only Brock Besser, really that's it. the only yeah, the only case you'd have is Brock Besser, who he did play with quite a lot in his in Besser's rookie season. And even and, then, Berchi was the third man on that line. Exactly. Like. Yes, uh, it's it's absolutely absurd that this guy wasn't on in the lineup from day one. I think they need. I, I think it's become clear now that we've seen that none of the other wingers are working with Bo Horvat. It should be very clear that they need him in the lineup. Um, and, you know, Sven Berchi is not a, he's not a defensive stalwart by any means, but he's not a liability either. And you can move him around the lineup. You can move him up and down if you need to, if you want more defensive winners on Horvat's line to hard match. I just can't understand why he would, wouldn't want this guy on the active roster, even if it's just to sit in the press box. He's, what, 26, 27 years old now? Um, you're not costing him anything by having to sit him if you do decide to do that. Now, I wouldn't do that, but I'm sure Green would have his reasons if he wanted to do that. I would much rather see Sven Berchi coming in and out of the lineup than Adam Gaudet, who I just want to see play right now because he's in that really important stage in his development where he needs to get reps in as much as possible. Um, I thought he had a great game. Uh, I expect him to start putting up, start putting up good numbers. If he continues to play with Bo Horvat last season, he, he only played 20 some odd games, but he was over half a point per game. in in that sample, he was like, um, he was, it seems like he was scoring a goal every second game. Um, he was playing some of the best hockey of his career. And it was just very sad that obviously he's had so much injury trouble, but, um, who, who in the bottom six hasn't had injury trouble, uh, over the past few years. So it's, it seems very strange to me that they targeted him for, uh, having those sort of, sorts of problems when there are all kinds of other people in the lineup that you could say the same thing about. Oh, of course, I've said many times on this show. Uh, you know, everything that has been shaped as the narrative around Sven Berchi is also true of Brandon Sutter, and is also true of Michael Furland. Is especially true of Michael Furland too, as I have demonstrated multiple times, is a worse player historically than Sven yeah. Berchi. Um, but you know, it, it is what it is. I guess I just I'm pulling for the guy that this uh, is going to last that he can stick here and, and be an important player for this team again because, like you said, uh, a lot of streaky players on this roster, especially in the top six right now, and 
he's you know relatively consistent overall i think you know he's not he's not putting up points every night but he he's consistently good even when he's not putting up the points i like to think anyways but um Oh, where to go from here? I guess, <laughs> I, I guess if uh, if Sven Berchi is going to draw into the lineup, though, the guy that is cycling in and out right now is Adam Gaudet, and we can talk about a couple different things on the Gaudet front. First of all, it is utterly baffling to me that you know Louis Erickson just even exists on this roster <laughs> anymore. Yeah, like you you ha- you have to treat him like. Remember Alex Biega? Remember that defenseman that we had for several years <laughs> that we just you know sent away earlier this season? The guy that we watched for so many seasons here in Vancouver, who was put in and out of the lineup like once a month to bring huge energy in the games that he did play. It seems like if you want to use Louis Erickson at all, you need to be using him like the Bulldog in that if he plays two, three games in a row, the effort is going to fall off a cliff. But if he plays once every 10 games, he's going to give you something probably passable in that one game. The problem is that we are well past that one game now, and he's playing six minutes a night, which, like, what is even the point of this guy? How can you possibly think that that's a better option than playing Adam Gaudet literally anywhere in this lineup? Well, that's part of what's so frustrating about these lineup decisions that have happened in the last little while. I, I, I just... Obviously, this is pure speculation, and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I have a really hard time believing that Travis Green would rather have Louis Erickson in the lineup than Sven Berchi. I don't get the impression that that was his decision. Sven Berchi is a guy he's had in Utica. He had him in uh, Portland. Um, they've worked together a lot. He was a guy that he really leaned on in the leaner years when they didn't have a lot of offensive players. He didn't treat Sven Berchi the way he treated, say, someone like Nikolai Goldobin, where it was always the sort of uh, faint praise and the, the stick approach as opposed to the carrot approach. Um, he, Travis Green always spoke really highly of Sven, and so I kind of have to believe that the reason why Louis Erickson is not, you know, in Utica or just constantly scratched is that there's a bit of a saving face element to this and that the Canucks management doesn't want this situation to get any worse than it already is. Because at this point, are you trading Louis Erickson? I gave up on that a year ago. It's not happening. Um, it's not happening. They, they, they have to just sit this out. They have to wait. For, for his contract to expire and then reap the benefits of having that cap space, I think any trade they could make would probably just hurt them even more. Um, I, I think he just he just has to retire. He, like yeah. that's the that's the move is to play him once every ten games and then at the end of the season, does he want to continue making six million dollars a year to play eight games a season? I mean, he probably does, but yeah, like that's the thing. But but, but there's also this just like. Is it worth it to go through the rigors of NHL life and all the travel and all the practice? I mean, for $6 million, I guess, yes, it is worth it. Fuck. Well, he's making less than that now, though. Yeah, that's, that's true. Because because his base uh, salary has gone down considerably. He, he had all those bonuses that paid him up front. So you may have a point, 
But at the same time, I, I don't know. I just get the impression from Erickson that he would just be like, yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just play eight games and make millions of dollars. That's fine. I'm not doing anything. Like, I I just, I feel like, you know, expecting somebody to retire and walk away from money is uh, is very rare, especially when you're Louis Erickson and you, you don't have any real loyalty to the organization that paid you all this money. It's not like Luongo in, uh, in Florida where, you know, he maybe had a reason to want to do um, his organization a solid after you know spending so much time there um yeah i don't see any easy solutions to the louis erickson thing so i say just yeah either play him once every eight games or just wave him Uh, he's not helping the team and he's blocking players who who could help the team so yeah. yeah, I don't understand it. One final note on the Sven Berchi front before we move on to Adam Gaudet. Uh, it's so frustrating, especially when you see, because you mentioned, look, he's he's not defensively perfect, but he's not a liability either. For for the argument to, to be uh, in favor of sending him down that, you know, he, he can't play a bottom six game. When you're not using one of your bottom six lines, as a checking line at all. Brandon Sutter yeah. is having his worst <laughs> defensive season ever of his entire career, and yet that's totally fine because we're using his line as a scoring line. Well, you have a scorer on hand waiting in the wings, waiting in the AHL, who was waiting in the AHL anyways. Like, well, come on. That, like, that doesn't that doesn't hold water at all. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, the the funny thing is the Canucks are finally doing what we wanted them to do for a long time, which is roll three scoring lines. But their third scoring line is like this cobbled together, uh, extremely problematic when you look at it on a deeper level, sort of hodgepodge of, of three guys who don't fit anywhere else. Um, yeah, I, I I don't understand it either. It doesn't make any sense to me. I would much rather, um, I would much rather just see them lean into that. That line's already bad defensively, anyways. You might as well add some offensive punch to it. That is where we leave you for today. Please return back tomorrow if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far uh, for a continuation of this conversation as we talk about uh, more on the JT Miller trade, more on uh, Jake Vertanen, how his season is going, more on Adam Gaudet, his fit on this roster, how he can find a role on this team, and yes, even a conversation about Adam Gaudet's old tweets to boot. So be sure to come on back for that tomorrow on The Big Show. Until then, I have been and will continue to be Justin Morissette, and you've been locked in on Locked On Canucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.